How's everybody doing this morning? I love that this morning we're celebrating uh, freedom for our nation. And I just think about the freedom in my own life. And that's a celebration for me today. And, and I would just say each and every one of us in here as followers of Jesus, that as we celebrate the freedom of our country, I just, uh, I'd submit to you that, that let's celebrate the freedom we have in Christ. Amen? Yeah. Amen. Um, yeah, so like Craig said, five years ago, I was a completely different person. Um, I was a meth and heroin addict for almost nine years. And God radically encountered me and changed my life in 2016. And man, I have not looked back. Um, I actually have a picture I wanted to share. I didn't share this last night. Right here, that's actually me on the left. So that's me before Jesus, you know, 97 pounds strung out. Uh, Obviously, I've gained a lot of weight since then. (laughs) But I believe this is where I'm supposed to be. So who I am now, um, I serve here over the youth ministry with my wife, Kate. I'm very passionate about the next generation. Reason being is because those are the years where it all went wrong for me. So I'm very passionate about helping students not fall into the same traps and snares that I fell into at their age. Um, I'm very thankful to have the privilege to share with y'all this morning. The title of the series is 3 a.m., What is Waking You Up at Night? And what wakes me up at 3 a.m.? I want to share a graphic real quick with you. Her name is Selah. She's eight months old. She tends to wake me up on the regular. Uh, Last night was my night to sleep through the night while my wife would wake up with Selah, and that is not how it went. She's on the cusp of crawling, which means she has learned how to kind of barrel roll to my side of the bed and scratch me as I sleep. So I'm a little tired this morning (laughs) because she did wake me up at 3 a.m. But hey, what else is on my mind continually that wakes me up at 3 a.m.? I would say it's how intentionally we are pursuing relationship with Jesus and with others. So the title of the talk today is Disciples. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this opportunity to gather together with your people. God, I pray that this word would go on good soil. It would go deep into our hearts. Lord, that we would not just be hearers of the word, but doers also. So God, we pray, have your way with this gathering. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Hey, if you're going to remember anything about what I shared today, I would hope that you remember this. We are all called to be apprentices of Jesus and disciple makers. Now, what does that mean? It means we should follow and learn from the greatest teacher of all, Jesus, while also encouraging and leading others to do the same, to be an apprentice of Jesus and to be a disciple maker. Jesus said it very plainly in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. This is called the Great Commission. He says, uh, and he said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You know, uh, last week, uh, J.O., we're we're a little similar in our anointing, both very evangelistic. Uh, You're going to hear a couple of the same scriptures that he shared last week, but I'm going to be pulling a couple different nuggets out of it. Uh, With the Great Commission, the two things that really pop out to me is he said, make disciples and teach them. He said, teaching them to observe the commandments, right? That's what God's called us to do, to be an apprentice of Jesus and to be a disciple maker. So I want to share a small piece of an article I read uh, called The Discipleship Defect. But hey, before I do, would y'all give me permission to be real with you today? 
praise God, that's about 80%, so I'm feeling like I can do it. This article rocked me, and you know, I, I, I don't like to, to be too extensive with quoting people, but I just, there's sometimes you just got to share the person that did it the best in the beginning instead of rephrasing what they said. So I'm just going to read what they said. The scriptures picture followers of Jesus as engaged in a disciplined way of life. The reality is a small percentage are invested in spiritual growth practices. One of the consistent images in the New Testament for the Christian life is the discipline of an athlete. Comparing the Christian life to a race, Paul wrote, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the game goes in with strict training. In making this comparison, Paul raised the bar. If athletes will put themselves through a harsh regiment to get a perishable wealth, how much more should Christians discipline themselves because, of our, goal, because our goal is an imperishable one? One is left with an obvious impression that leading the Christian life is going to require spiritual discipline. Yet, when we turn from scriptural pictures to the church of today, we observe another version of the 80-20 rule. Has anyone ever heard of that? 20% of the people do all the work and 80% of the people just show up. Studies have shown that only one in six adults who attend Christian worship are involved in some type of group or relational process that is designed to help them grow spiritually. George Barna comments pointedly on his own research. In a society as fast-moving and complex as ours, people have to make choices every minute of every day. Unless people have a regular and focused exposure to the foundations of their faith, the chances of Christians consistently making choices to reflect biblical principles are minimal. According to Barna, Fewer than one in five born-again adults have any specific or measurable goals related to his or her own spiritual development. Barna interviewed hundreds of people, including church leaders and pastors, and yet, shockingly, he concluded, not one of the adults we interviewed said that their goal in life was to be committed to being a follower of Jesus and to make disciples of the entire world, not even their entire block. Dallas Willard adds this exclamation point. The fact is that there is now lacking a serious and expectant intention to bring Jesus' people into obedience and abundance through training. I want to share some statistics. These are from Barna, a trusted source. And they kind of floored me as I was doing my studying this week and kind of changed the focus of where we're going today. 65% of Protestant churchgoers say that they can walk with God without other believers. 65%. 61% say spiritual matters don't come up as a normal part of their daily conversation with other Christians. 67% of churchgoers don't read the Bible daily. So, hypothetically, if these statistics are accurate, this means that only one out of every four people in this room statistically are growing in discipleship and with Christ. Statistically, that means it might be someone on your left or your right. So, let's dig into this. One of the aspects of our apprenticeship to Jesus is the character and attitude in which we serve his people. Amen? So the main context of scripture I'm going to be sharing in today is Romans 12. You can open with me if you have your Bibles. But I'd like to set the stage a little bit before we dig in. 
Romans 12 is a very well-known chapter, right? A lot of people will reference this when talking about unity or talking about the many parts of the body and how we are all one, and those are all true statements, and that's a great chunk of what he's writing in this chapter. But in my recent studies, God highlighted some more things to me that were in the beginning and the end, and they were these aspects of what our character and our attitude should be like as an apprentice of Jesus, Not just what our gifts are and how to operate in the body, but how to do so within the body. So, we'll start in verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. See, he doesn't tell us that everything that we do in ministry and in life is going to be some rainbows and butterflies and make us feel happy. A lot of the things that we're going to do for God and and for Jesus, they're going to be kind of a point of suffering. It might not be something that we love to do in our day-to-day life. But what he says here in the scriptures is he says, this is how we present ourselves as spiritual worship, that we would present ourselves as a living sacrifice, that we would die, right? Right? And what I notice in this verse at the end is he says that this is our spiritual form of worship. Now, every weekend we gather together and we throw our hands up and we praise him with with song and we praise him in the worship of the word. And I would say that these are physical forms of worship. But I love that God points out that our spiritual form of worship is that we would live as a living sacrifice. Now, one of the ways that I do this is I serve in kids' ministry twice a month. I will let you know right now, I don't specifically feel called to kids' ministry. (laughs) I love it. I love supporting the team. I love supporting Shelby. And I've had a lot of really powerful moments listening to kids tell me things that they received in the secret place. And it's blown me away. But generally speaking, this isn't an aspect of ministry that I I very much look forward to often. (laughs) But for me, this is an opportunity for me to walk out the scriptures in true discipleship to Jesus. See, I'm going to present my body as a living sacrifice to help the entire body move forward. And when I do that, this is my spiritual worship to God. So I come in here on a Sunday and I worship during song and I worship during the word. But twice a month on Saturday nights, I'm going to spiritually worship God serving your children. And what I would submit to you today is that we are all called to do the same. And maybe that's kids' ministry for you. That is generally a need in our church. And I would encourage you, if it's something when I say you want to serve in kids' ministry and you get that, oh, I don't want to do that, you should probably do it. It would probably really help you grow on your journey. (laughs) Probably would. Anyone about to get married in the house, raise your hand. Y'all should sign up for kids' ministry. Prepare yourself. (laughs) I'm so happy I started in kids' ministry before I got married and had a baby. It definitely prepared me. So verse 2, he says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. What he's stating here is that we need to choose to live for Christ and prepare for testing. I love that he says transform your mind because for me, I had to radically transform the way that I thought. Coming into church culture is completely different than the way that I used to live. 
And I had to have a renewing of my mind. I had to realize that the way the world says things go are not the way God says things go. And I had to have a change in my mind. And at the same point as I'm doing those things, I need to prepare for testing. Because how many of you know that when we start our faith journey with Jesus, it's not always easy. Sometimes it comes with a lot of pressure and a lot of tension. Because God's refining us and he's making us more into his character. Verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. To summarize that, humble yourselves. Put others above you. See, I know that there's a need in kids' ministry, so that's where I'm going to go pour myself out. Because I need to humble myself and say, hey, this might not be what I want to do, but I'm going to do because it's what God needs me to do. I'm going to humble myself. I'm going to put others above myself and I'm going to support them. It's what God has called each and every one of us to do as we operate with our giftings inside of the body. Verse four, it says, for as in one body, we have many members and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So, We need to recognize the part of the body that we are in and then grow in it. Now, I hear this a lot of times from a lot of people. I I just don't know what my gifting is. Well, go serve in something that's not your gift. You know, I used to do a lot of street ministry, and and I'd invite people out on the streets with me, and they're like, oh, I'm not an evangelist. (laughs) Well, I'd encourage you to come out because God called each of us to do the work of an evangelist. And when we just do what God's called us to do, normally he'll reveal to us what our gifts and talents are. So if you still don't know your gifts and talents, I'd encourage you, just start serving. Find a hole, find a need in this church and fill it. That we would operate as one body, humbling ourselves to one another, putting others above ourselves. Verse nine, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. And catch this last part, outdo one another in showing honor. You know, I'm not like a theologian or anything. I've been studying the word since I got saved, so that's only five years. I'm pretty much a baby. But in my studies and research so far in the word, I don't know any other place where God asked us to outdo one another. But here he lays it out very plainly that we should outdo one another in the giving of honor. Humbling ourselves, putting others above ourselves, serving one another, being hospitable to one another, to outdo one another in showing honor. What a great challenge. What a great challenge. Man, I'm going to try to, Elijah, I'm just going to constantly try to outdo you in honor. I'm going to honor you so much today. You watch. (laughs) Verse 11 Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. This, I feel like this, I should get this tattooed in Greek somewhere in my body. Because I feel like this is me. That that we should not be slothful in zeal. 
Be excited about your faith. Don't lose the fire. Have a fervency in your spirit. Be excited. I'm still excited that God saved me five years ago. And I just get louder and louder about it. Right? I ran into a really good friend of mine yesterday at Ace Hardware named Thomas Vigil. He was in there ministering to somebody. And I come up to him. I don't see him very often, but he's a very near and dear friend. And, and I come up to him. And one of the first things he says to me, and I feel like he says it every time he sees me, is he says, man, I love that you still have the fire you started with. Just because we've been walking out our faith for years does not mean we have to lose the zeal and fervency that we had when he first saved us. God has called each and every one of us to show the joy of the Lord. People should be excited about it. I hope people come to church because they just know how crazy I am about this place. Like, I want you to come. Come dance with me like a crazy person up front. It's super fun. Might feel awkward the first time, but you'll get the hang of it. So have a fervency, operate in zeal. Verse 12, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. We should always rejoice in the salvation that's been given to us, the hope of tomorrow, the hope of eternity. But also at that same time, we should be preparing for tribulation. We should. If you think that just because you got saved, God's gonna make everything easy, I have, I, I have some information for you this morning that you might need to know. <laughs> Things might get challenging. Our country might get a little crazy. There might be a little persecution, but you know what it's gonna do? It's gonna refine us and make us more like Jesus. Praise God, bring on the tribulation. Make me more like you. Verse 13. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. You kind of see the vein we're going through here. We have to care for the body and contribute where the need is. Not just where we want, but where the need is. So, shameless plug, we got youth camp coming up. It's August 2nd through the 6th. We're gonna host 400 people. It's gonna be crazy. Kids are gonna be dropping out on the floor. They're gonna be feeling the spirit. They're gonna be, it's gonna be crazy. I could go on and on. But kids experience God in a radical way at camp. But see, we can't do that unless we have volunteers. And you know, sometimes it, it narrows down to the very practical things. Like right now, man, we need some nurses. Because guess what? Kids get hurt at camp. I have to prepare my heart for a serious injury. Because it might just happen. But we would like that there's a nurse there to take care of that kid when he does something crazy and his leg's out of socket. So if you're a nurse or an RN, we need you. Find me after the gathering. Serve and take care of the body where the biggest need is. And hey, if you're a bus driver, if you have a CDL with the passenger's endorsement, we need you. <laughs> it is so hard to find somebody with this. It's like pulling a needle from a haystack. I did have a gentleman come up to me after service last night. Praise God on high. But that's a need that we need to fill. These are areas that we can care for the body and contribute where the need is, not just where we want. We all have unique gifts, okay? We, we all have the same base of our discipleship or our apprenticeship, which is Jesus. However, not many of us will have similar apprenticeships to Jesus. Not everyone's apprenticeship looks the same. 
Some of us are called to serve, others to exhort, some to administrate, others to give, others to lead, others to be merciful. Some are called to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Others are gifted in wisdom, knowledge, faith, healing, mercy, tongues, and interpretation of tongues. And this is not an exhaustive list. Each of us has the same base, but most of us have different structures to operate and grow in. 1 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 4, says this. Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are a variety of services, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. See, there are a variety of different ways we can learn from Jesus, and there are so many possible gifts that he has given each and every one of us to grow in. Each of us has the same base, but most of us have different structures to operate and grow in. So, a little bit of history of humanity. Water is essential for our survival. Would you agree? Well, that's better than last night. About 20% of people said, and then I had to explain to them that you'll die if you don't drink water. <laughs> so since the beginning of humanity, people have had to find, contain, and purify water for basic survival. So my question to you today is, can water be utilized if it is not held within a container or structure? Can water be utilized if it's not within a container or structure? So, freedom comes in structure. Structure brings life. Jesus gave us instruction and structure to help us thrive in our journey through life. For about two years, I lived with a pastor from another church that I used to go to. And I believe wholeheartedly that if I didn't intentionally spend that time inside that structure, I would not be on this stage today. Yes, I might still be a follower of Jesus, but honestly, I'd probably be more lukewarm. I wouldn't have the fervency I have today. Because see, God needed to put a nine-year meth and heroin addict in a certain structure so that I could form and I could grow. And without that sort of structure, I would not have the growth that I have today. So living with my pastor for two years, from the minute I got out of rehab until pretty much the day I married my wife, is honestly what helped me on my spiritual journey and, above all else, what helped keep my purity through my courtship with my wife. To where on my marriage day, I can say that I held myself for marriage. Which, if you talked to me five years ago, I'd be like, you're crazy. There's no way that's going to happen. But God did it because I operated in the structure that he had for me. So... Boundaries are not always a bad thing. So I want to do an analogy this morning. I have these vases, different shapes, different sizes, different colors. And these are to signify the structure that we should operate in. Now, how many of you know, if I take your anointing and your gifts and all the thing that God has for you, and I don't pour it within a structure, it just pours out and most likely evaporates and doesn't stress Seth out. <laughs> but how many of you know, if I take your anointings and your gifts and I pour them within the structure that God's created for you to thrive in, that it contains and it grows. So some of you 
Some of you might need a weekly small group to be your structure, to help you contain and grow in your spiritual journey. And that might help you thrive. And I'd encourage each and every one of us to be in a small group. Some of you might need that person that's meeting up with you one-on-one on a regular basis that's helping your structure float, fill, and thrive. <laughs> and you know what? Meeting up with people regularly isn't always clean. Sometimes it's a little messy. <laughs> But it's important. <laughs> Thank you, God. <laughs> so we have these, these, these different structures that each of us have. You know, how many agree that these look completely different from one another? Now, this guy might be gifted in prophecy. This guy might be gifted as a pastor. But you know what I see that happens in the church a lot that we need to stop doing? I'm just, I just wish I could be more like the pastor. And we start pouring out our gifts. We start pouring out the structure that God's given us to thrive in because we're jealous of other people's gifts. God didn't call you to pour your gifts into somebody else's vessel. God called you to fill the vessel that he's created just for you. And if we could just do so, I believe we would thrive in the body of Christ. So what does it mean to be an apprentice of Jesus? The Greek word for disciple literally means a learner or a pupil or a disciple. In Matthew 4.18, it says this, While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And tomorrow, no, immediately, they left their nets and followed him. Jesus wants the same for us. So what does it mean to follow? It means to engage in as a calling or a way of life or to pursue. It means to walk or proceed along or to follow the path. What it looks like to be an apprentice of Jesus is simply to follow after our creator. It's literally summed up in the word repentance. Repent literally means turn away from what you've been doing and turn towards him and pursue him. Repent. And choose, choose discipleship with Jesus. So what does it mean to be a disciple maker? It means we are regularly meeting with one another and growing in our spiritual journey. In our spiritual journey, we should not just be seeking assimilation. We should also be seeking discipleship and spiritual growth. Let me describe real quick what assimilation looks like. Assimilation is the process of helping people adapt to a new culture. They take on the language, the customs, the mannerisms, and the wardrobe of their adopted culture. Once they look like, talk like, act like, they are the new culture. They are regarded as being assimilated. So if we are assimilating non-church people into becoming part of the church, we are teaching them how to look like, talk like, and act like people who belong to a church. What is lacking is actual life transformation. Mimicking actions, language, and appearance does not make a disciple. It makes a cultural Christian. Disciples make disciples, but not in mass quantity. Discipleship starts with one. 
Jesus did more with 12 broken people than we've done with millions. Primarily three changed the entire world because Jesus was intentional with the one. This is why discipleship is so important. Growing with other believers on our spiritual journey is essential to our faith. Whether in the context of one-on-one or small group settings, it's important. Small groups give us the opportunity to grow and be vulnerable with others and is a key part of our spiritual development. But I would submit to you today that one-on-one discipleship is just as important. And it's not just teaching and leading, but it's walking with. Some of the most fruitful discipleship that I have of people I walk with are, are not teaching them theology or going line by line through the scriptures. It's meeting up and having breakfast. And when times get hard, they know where they can turn. They know that I'm here for them because I'm consistent in their life. And I'm holding them accountable when they're struggling through areas of their life. I allow them to be a part of my life, not just my ministry on Wednesdays or Sundays. One of the truest statements my mother ever said to me was, you are who you associate with. So, For years, when I operated in the structure that God needed me to operate in, I lived with my pastor, I walked with my pastor, I did life with my pastor, I preached with my pastor, and now I'm on the track to become a pastor. Because we are who we associate with. So associate with the people that are in your gift bent. Meet up with them. Have coffee. Do life with them. Let them help you with your projects around your house. You know, I'm very blessed to serve over a youth ministry. So if I ever need anything done, I'm going to do my roof here in a little bit and guarantee you I'll have a whole team out there. But hey, don't overcomplicate things. Just let them be a part of your life. We get so caught up in this like, oh, I'm not worthy. I don't know the Bible enough. I I don't know how to raise somebody up or teach them in the word. Start with coffee and just see what spawns from it. But so often we get caught up in not worthy or or not eligible to do this. And then we never make the leap to do what God has called each and every one of us to do. So in conclusion, we are called to be apprentices of Jesus. This can look like growing in our character and attitude, serving his people, or discovering and growing in our gifts. And we are called to be disciple makers. This can look like leading a small group, meeting with people one-on-one, or simply allowing others to do life with you. So, like Jesus himself said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age.